Welcome, my flourishing friends, to episode number 31. In today's episode, we are going to explore the concept of biophilia. We're going to talk about what it means and how it can provide solutions in our lives. We'll explore how it relates to issues of nature deficit disorder and deep ecology, and then look at ways in which we can integrate biophilia into our day-to-day lives. It's exciting stuff. Let's dive in. I'm Christina Hunter, and you are listening to the Live Well Green podcast, all about sustainable well-being and green living. We explore how to do what is good for the planet and for ourselves in order to truly flourish. we get into today's episode, if you are listening to this episode in the week that it aired, I have a very special offer that is available now. It is the Sustainable Wellbeing Academy. It's my premier online course all about sustainable well-being and how we can live our best lives for ourselves, for the planet, and for others. It's a 10-week online program where I run you through all of the tools to get us to be able to live better for the planet while taking better care of our own mental, physical, and spiritual health. So it's in a really incredible program, all from an evidence-based perspective. I really hope you join me there. You can find out more about the Sustainable Wellbeing Academy on my website, which is christinahunterflourishing.com. That's Christina with a K. Let's get into today's topic, which is biophilia. What is it and how can we benefit from it? Well, the term biophilia was first used by the German-born American psychoanalyst and social philosopher Eric Fromm, and he wrote about it in The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness, a book that was published in 1973, and it described biophilia as the passionate love of life and of all that is alive. So that was the first discussion of biophilia, but it really became popularized by the author E.O. Wilson. And in his book, The Biophilia Hypothesis of 1984, he uses the term as the connections that human beings subconsciously seek with the rest of life, end of quote. So it's a really interesting concept that discusses our deep connection and affiliation that humans have with all other life forms and with nature as a whole. And this connection is actually rooted in our biology, as suggested by E.O. Wilson. The biophilia hypothesis examined how our tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes might actually be biologically based and that it's actually something that's integral to our development as individuals and as a species. 
So one of the main tenets is that nature is really central to the human experience, that we have a deep reliance on the natural world for our existence. And of course we do. When we just think about the food that we eat, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the materials that we use to construct our buildings and our possessions and on and on. And I get into some of that in episode number one. So you can head on back to that episode to review. But we really don't understand it at a molecular level sometimes that nature is part of us in our molecules, in our cells, in our DNA, as well as in our social and cultural constructs, in our religion. It's deeply connected to nature and references to nature and the abundance of nature provided to us, as well as in our cultural references, in our language, all those sayings and also in the way we adorn ourselves and our aesthetics often relate back to nature. And there's also growing evidence of the real physiological benefits as well as the mental health benefits of spending time in nature. In his book called Children and Nature, Psychological, Sociocultural, and Evolutionary Investigations by Peter Kahn Jr., he highlights some of the important roles that nature plays in a child's development. He describes the evidence that shows that nature really supports human development in terms of physical, emotional, intellectual, and even moral development. Of course, we can relate to this because we can often think back to times as a child when we played in nature and we had adventures in nature that were very formative for us. So that really is an understandable concept. And what E.O. Wilson is suggesting in his biophilia hypothesis is that nature really forms us and also informs how we see the world. And I quote from E.O. Wilson, the brain is prone to weave the mind from the evidences of life, not merely the minimal contact required to exist, but a luxuriance and excess spilling into virtually everything we do end of quote. So that's really talking about how we connect with nature, that nature is really central to our human experience. E.O. Wilson also suggests that this connection is innate, that it is absolutely programmed in us to relate to other life forms, that we have innate abilities to connect and on some level to communicate with other organisms, with other animals and living beings on earth. Now, this makes sense to anybody who has had a pet because we really understand that deep connection that we can have with an animal that is a completely different species from us. And even when we think about our propensity for tending plants, for just enjoyment or for gardening, for growing plants, there's a real desire to connect. Then we also have some innate connections that might be negative, this innate fear that we might have. And E.O. Wilson suggests that that's absolutely normal because we evolved in nature and it is 
to our benefit to have this fear of some things. And it might even be in our DNA that it's completely understandable to have a fear of snakes or spiders or thunder and lightning because it helps to preserve us as a species. But he also contends that our desire for seeing nature around us is really rooted in evolving on the African savanna, this wide open landscape dotted with vegetation, where we need high points in the land to view our surroundings, and that we always would settle near sources of fresh water. And this really can be seen as translating to how we live our lives today. Our love of these landscapes, our desire to go out into nature, to spend time at the cottage, near a lake, or contemplating by the river, as well as our enjoyment of gardens and hiking in the mountains or just enjoying the view from a high point, that this is really integral to who we are because it's programmed in us from how we evolved in nature and with nature. So that's a really interesting aspect of this thought around biophilia. It's programmed in us for good reasons. And then he also postulates that not only do we need nature, but we should also consider what we owe to nature, that we should really think about our payback to nature as being our desire and obligation to protect nature, to protect it, to understand it, to study nature, and to really be informed by it. And we're really at risk of not wanting to protect nature if we don't connect to it, especially as children. And we can think about this term nature deficit disorder coined by Richard Louv in his book of the same name. And E.O. Wilson also suggests that if we don't properly study nature through our science investigations, as science moves towards more functional knowledge in terms of obtaining knowledge about nature for commercialization, we can think about pharmaceuticals and biotech and so on, rather than for the simple understanding of nature. So we can be at risk of not having generations following that will want to protect nature if, first of all, we don't spend time in nature, and secondly, we don't put our energy into understanding and researching nature. But beyond the functional, we also understand that nature is really truly part of the essence of who we are. There's a really lovely excerpt about this that I'd like to read to you from the Schmelz blog entry on the Serendip Studio website. And they write, Wilson beautifully admits, the truth is that we never conquered the world, never understood it. We only think we have control. We do not even know why we respond a certain way to other organisms and need them in diverse ways so deeply. I know that for myself, I need that tree, that flower, and that sky because they complement and comprise my human experience in ways of which I am both aware and unaware. 
I like the story that Wilson creates. I like the idea that these things create me as I create them. The story is one that I believe may transform the ways in which we approach and think about our humanness, our environment, and our construction of the conservation ethic. It personalizes the issue. Biophilia suggests that protecting the environment is not only about protecting that tree, that flower, and that sky, but protecting ourselves and the essence of what, in part, makes us human. End of quote. So that really gets at the issue of understanding and needing to connect with nature, not just for the protection of nature, but really for our full fulfillment of ourselves as humans. So I think that was really beautifully written there. Then we can also really understand that if we don't take the time to connect with nature, we really are at risk of nature deficit disorder, which is that idea that people, especially children, are spending less time outdoors. And this change can result in a really wide range of behavioral problems and other mental health problems. Richard Louvre, who's the author of The Last Child in the Woods, who put forward this idea of nature deficit disorder, claims that the causes for nature deficit disorder include parental fears and have less access to natural spaces and end up spending more time with electronic devices. And this loss of natural habitat in their cities and in our neighborhoods is meaning that we are normalizing lack of access to nature. And we're also normalizing spending more and more time indoors using electronics. And this was all written well before the global pandemic, where people spent a lot of time indoors as well. And yet, I don't despair. Because people still have an incredibly strong desire to continue to reconnect and spend time in nature. And this, to me, means that there is hope for conservation and for our personal connection to nature. That connection is identified in the concept of deep ecology. That's explored further in episode number two, all about exploring the environmental ethos, if you'd like to get into it more. But deep ecology is a movement that considers humans to be no more important than other species, which is really quite a dramatic shift in our perspective about our place in the world. And the deep ecology movement advocates for a change in this relationship between humans and nature. And it argues that nature is really full of a huge variety of subtle balances of interrelationships between organisms. And the existence of organisms is actually dependent on the existence of other organisms within ecosystems. And that the human interference or destruction of the natural world poses not only a threat to humans, but all organisms, as well as the natural order. So deep ecology really advocates for an evolving system of ecological wisdom and harmony. So what are the solutions to this lack of connection to nature and this severe disruption of natural systems that we are seeing? 
Well, one of the solutions I'd like to think about is biophilic design. And when we think about biophilic design, it comes directly from the concept of biophilia and has been adopted in some branches of architecture. So with biophilic design, we have three major categories of understanding how to implement this in the design world. And that means to implement it through bringing nature into the space, as well as understanding the nature of the space and natural analogs. So let's just tease that out a little bit more. When we're thinking about nature in our design spaces, that means we want to bring the occupants into direct interaction with nature in an indoor environment in a very multi-sensory way. So we want to think about the visual, the tactile, the olfactory, and all of those ways in which we might experience nature in the indoor environment. So we can think about things like living walls, where we have all sorts of plants growing on our walls. And we can think about having views of the natural landscape and views of the outdoors. We can use rooftop gardens to promote more greenery in the urban environment and allow workers and occupants to have more access to green spaces. And then we can bring indoors water features, which would provide humidity as well as sounds of water and visual interest. And then we can even think about bringing animals indoors in terms of having a resident dog in your office space or fish tanks or other ways to integrate those elements. Then when we think about the nature of of the space, we want to think about the design reflecting nature, maybe mimicking natural patterns or the feelings that we get in nature. So the design itself is actually inspired by nature. For example, we might have ceiling beams that are designed to mimic tree branches. So that would be an example of the nature of the space when we use biophilic design. This is when we're using nature-inspired patterns and shapes and colors, and we try to replicate the feeling of being in a natural space. So first of all, we bring nature indoors or a view of nature to the built environment, and then we try to mimic nature by having our designs inspired by nature. And then finally, we're going to think about natural analogs in the design, which is more indirectly reflecting nature in the design space. We might have nature-inspired shapes and patterns using non-natural materials, though. So that would be a nature analog that we could potentially also use in biophilic design. These concepts are integrated into some green building systems, such as the Well Building Standard and the Living Building Challenge. And I talk about those in episode number eight, if you're interested in getting into those topics further. Then I'd also like to bring up the topic of restorative spaces as a way to integrate biophilic design into our spaces. Stephen and Rachel Kaplan are professors of psychology at the University of Michigan, and they specialize in environmental psychology. And in 1988, in their book called With People in Mind, Design and Management of Everyday Nature, written 
by Kaplan, Kaplan, and Ryan, they define restorative spaces as spaces of quiet fascination, wandering in small spaces, a separation from distraction that integrates wood, stone, and old items, as well as having a view from the window. So the idea with these restorative spaces are that they have been shown to improve cognition, improve healing after illness, and improve a person's feeling of being restored. And they called this attention restoration therapy. And research has supported that views of nature improve happiness and productivity quite significantly in office workers and test results in students and has all kinds of benefits for us. So what is a restorative space? It's a place in our built environment, in our homes or in our schools or universities, workplaces or institutions that are quiet and calm that use natural materials such as wood or stone, and hopefully have a view of nature from the window. So it's pretty easy to design these little restorative spaces, and they can be very beneficial to the people using them. Then finally, I would like to bring up the idea of just bringing houseplants into your space. They are a really easy way to benefit from biophilia, and they have lots of benefits to give us. Not only does it feel really good to tend to a living thing, and it's a much lower commitment, of course, than having a pet, but it also has all kinds of other benefits for us. Not only do houseplants add oxygen to the air, but they also provide moisture in our indoor environments, and they do have some small function in removing toxins, and evidence has shown that they improve concentration and focus, as well as allow allowing patients to heal faster from surgeries, and they have been shown to help decrease anxiety and depression. So it's a really simple way to bring nature into our homes and benefit from biophilia, from our innate attachment to nature. Then, of course, please don't forget that just getting out into nature is also a great way to think about benefiting from biophilia. And I have a whole episode on great ways to do that in under an hour. So that is biophilia and how we can benefit from it. The key messages from today's episode that I would love for you to take away are that, first of all, humans subconsciously seek out connections to nature all throughout their lives. And these connections are really crucial for our development, both as individuals and as a species. Deep ecology is an approach that supports the balance between humans and nature. And if we reduce these connections, not only do we suffer— but we also risk not protecting natural spaces and natural species. So some of the solutions that we can use to integrate biophilia into our own lives is to think about biophilic design, which is meant to reconnect people with nature through 
bringing it in into our buildings, in our work environments, our learning environments, our living spaces. And these designs have been shown to have all sorts of positive effects on our mental wellness, as well as our cognition, creativity, and our health. And we can also think about using restorative spaces, which are used in attention restoration therapy. And then, of course, we can use houseplants, which are really simple solutions with many benefits. And finally, let's not forget about just trying to get ourselves out into nature a little bit more often. Well, before I leave you, I will give you one last quote for the day from Aristotle, who said, In all things of nature, there is something of the wonderful. That's all for now. If you are interested in exploring these issues further, please do head on over to my website. It is ChristinaHunterFlourishing.com. That's Christina with a K. There you will find a variety of free downloadable resources, including the Sustainable Wellbeing Starter Kit and the Green Home Guide please do sign up for my newsletter. It is full of resources and inspiration and news from the flourishing community, and it comes out every Friday. And if you are looking for a great way to send a gift to a friend with cancer, please check out the unexpectedgiftbox.com. There you will find curated gifts that are tailored to helping somebody address the symptoms of dealing with cancer. Finally, if you like what you are hearing, please leave me a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. I can't wait to talk to you again. Until then, live well green, my flourishing friends. Bye for now.